get your Bibles and open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking specifically today at verses 14 through 18. 14 through 18, but we're going to pick it up uh, with verse 13 and we'll read through verse 19 today. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 13. This is God's word, holy and inspired, and we believe it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious day today. We thank you for your wisdom in giving us the Lord's day to come each week to sing your praises, to be encouraged by the fellowship of the saints, to hear your word proclaimed. And now as we, as we approach this passage of scripture, I feel very frail this morning in my ability to to mine the depths of the theology of this passage. So would you open my mouth to proclaim your greatness and goodness in your wisdom? And would you open our hearts to understand and embrace the mystery of the gospel that you have for us here today? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're around my age maybe older, maybe a little bit younger. You remember growing up with the Berlin Wall. I remember seeing pictures of this wall that divided East and West Germany. I remember how that, um, hearing of in 1961, how one morning there was no wall and the next morning there was a fence that divided East and West Berlin. Family members, some even cut off, who had gone to one side and didn't make it back before this fence went up and later turned into this massive brick wall that divided that city in half. Most of us, if you're around my age, grew up with that threat 
of communism hanging over us. Young people today are seeing that again, aren't we? And we remember, I remember thinking that wall would stand forever. That wall would probably never come down. But then I remember one day in 19, what year was it? 1989. That wall came down. I can remember where I was standing when I heard on the radio there had been some unrest, there had been some, uh, some uh, times where people were gathering and having these protests, and suddenly this announcement came out that, that, that the wall had been declared open. And you may have seen the, the people jumping over the wall, shaking hands with each other, climbing over it, and then the amazing thing of them beginning to chip it away, <laughs> chip it away. people with hammers, pickaxes, bringing that wall down. It was an amazing, amazing thing for people on two sides, two ideologies, to be reconciled. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul speaks of a wall that separates two great peoples, Jew and Gentile. He refers to it as this wall of hostility. And we see today how that wall will come down. Remember last week we read in verse 13 this passage, but now in Christ Jesus you who were far off Gentiles who were distant from God have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ refers to Christ's atoning work on his cross. And now we saw, we saw last week, that the Gentiles who were far off had been brought near by that amazing work. We said last week that they were separated, but now they're united. They were aliens, now they're citizens. They were strangers, now they're friends. They were hopeless, now they are full of hope. They were without God, but now God is their God. Verse 13 shows how they were brought near. And listen to what verse 19 says. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The passage before our passage today and the passage end uh, at the end of our day is, is put together with, with verses 14 through 18 that tells us how this was achieved. Paul, in verses 14 through 18, shows how God causes this amazing transformation from Gentiles into the people of God and this unity between these two great peoples. Paul shows how the glorious work of Jesus' cross creates a new humanity that has access to God the Father. And that's what we're seeing today in this passage, how the... Paul shows how this glorious work of Christ on his cross creates a new humanity that is access to God the Father. We're going to see three main points. The assertion of peace, the purpose of peace, and the proclamation of peace. So let's get started. Number one, the assertion of peace. Let's look at verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice this assertion. For he himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. He who? He who? Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. He himself is our peace. This is an ontological statement of being. If I might say it this way regarding my own son, Hayden, he himself is my son. There's no other out there. I don't have another son. There is only one son, the only beloved son of Kevin and Linda is Hayden. He himself is our son. That's who he be, if I can say it that way. It's his being. Jesus is our peace, the apostle says. Our peace will not be found in another supreme, another subject, or another substance. There is no other peace outside of Jesus Christ. He is our peace. We're going to start Advent a little early now, okay? Luke 2, 8 through 14. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. For you. you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest! And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This holy announcement, the holy host of the heavens singing and proclaiming glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. He himself is our Peace. The abstract idea of peace is not abstract any longer. Jesus Christ is peace incarnate. Jesus Christ is peace incarnate. That's what the apostle is saying. And notice whose peace he is. Ours. 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 Jews and Gentiles have been brought into saving relationship, as verse 13 says, by his blood, by his blood. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has made us both 
one. He has made the two one. The two people now are one. I can't help but think of, uh, of marriage where the two become one. Something mystery it's a mystery it's a it's in a way magical i often think of that as a as i'm preaching a sermon and i proclaim uh, at the end of 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 a marriage ceremony now i present to you the husband and the wife mr and mrs briggs before they weren't now they are they were two and now they are one and that is the mystery that is the beauty that is the profound theology that, that, that Paul is unpacking for us in this, in this passage. He has made the two one. Brian Chappell says this. He says, in striking language, Paul goes beyond saying that Jesus brings peace. He doesn't, you hear that? He doesn't say Jesus brings peace. Certainly he does. But that's not what Paul says. Jesus brings peace. He says Jesus is peace in his capacity as peace incarnate. Christ makes both groups one. He destroys the barrier between them with the dual purpose of reconciling persons to each other and reconciling each person to God. Thus, Paul says that Christ's blood destroys both ancient enmity and creates a new humanity. This is profound. This is why I feel frail coming before you trying to unpack this. The, the, the amazing truth of this passage. A new humanity. One commentator said, a third race. <laughs> okay, a new race. A new people. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile. No. Believers. Christians. New people in Christ. Well, how does he do this? He does it under that first point. A, we could have this by breaking down the wall. Look at verse 14a. It says, Who, Jesus, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Some people believe that Paul has in mind here the wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews with the inscription in Greek and Latin prohibiting the entrance of a foreigner under the threat of death. This was mentioned by Josephus. And a portion of that wall with that inscription is on display in a museum in Jerusalem. Paul certainly knew that that wall existed. He knew that there was a court of the Gentiles and there was a court of the Jews and the Gentiles could, go, could not go in there. He also understood there was a court of the women and, and, and there were different areas where you could or could not go. But even though Paul understands that and knows that, I don't believe that's what he's referring to in this passage. The question really is, what made that physical wall even possible? What made that physical wall possible? Well, what made it possible was the law itself. Let's look at our passage again. How is he bringing this, these two peoples together to make them one? He does it by abolishing the law. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by, this is how he does it, by doing what? Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He does this by abolishing the law 
of commandments expressed in ordinances. This law, I believe, and many commentators and theologians believe, is referring to the law of Moses. One commentator, Bruce, says, this could be said, the, the law of commandments including all the ordinances. The law is abolished. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Listen in Hebrews chapter 8, speaking of this old law. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Not this earthly tabernacle, but this heavenly one that God has proclaimed. Not a, not a, a, a human high priest, but a, but a glorious high high priest who is, who is God himself, who is Jesus Christ. For every high priest, verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he, medita he, he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault in them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the, ho and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and, I show, and, and, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer to the Hebrews tells them this new covenant has come. This new covenant is coming. And that, that new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. It has been abolished or fulfilled in Christ. And there's a, move, a movement of, of of the law being on us to the law being in us. There's a difference in this out exterior, outside law pressing down on us. Paul talks about it like a, like a heavy yoke that we're bowed down under. And here the writer reminds us that this law is going to be put on our hearts or in our hearts, not just pressing down upon us. The old law is now in Christ, obsolete. Romans 7, 1 through 6 says this, Paul says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. You see what he's saying? He's saying if, if, if a woman is married and her husband dies, she's released. She's no longer bound to that law. And then he says, look, look, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Christ died, and you are in Christ. You died, and therefore the old law has no bearing upon you. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have been released from the law because Christ has died. Romans 10.4 for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. There's no longer a way for us to, to say, well, I'm going to be righteous by keeping the law. And we know, in fact, that anyone who tries to keep the law cannot be righteous anyway. Galatians 2.19, for, uh, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Galatians 3, 24, 29. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The word guardian here is uh, pedagogi, and it's, it, it likens a, a, um, an entrusted slave or entrusted servant who would take the child to school, basically. And they were entrusted as a tutor or as a teacher or as a protector to get that child from one place to another until that child was of age. And Paul likens the law into that, into that way, that, that the law was there to show Israel that they needed a Savior. The law was there until, uh, and, and that, that pedagogi, that, that special guardian was there until a certain point. The law was there until what? The law was there until Christ came. The law was there until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Who's the guardian? Who's the guardian? The law. We are no longer under that guardian. We are no longer under the law. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. Through Christ, you're sons of God by faith. There is, uh, I'm sorry, I skipped. 
Verse 27. I'm still in Galatians 3.24. It's taking a long time, isn't it? <laughs> Verse 27. For as many as you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, everyone who has been baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. And then he says this, which harkens back to our passage today. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Listen to what Harold Honer says, a uh, uh, theologian and regarding this passage. He says this, The law has been rendered inoperative or nullified for the believer. The law of Moses, the content which are the commandments consisting of decrees, has been rendered inoperative for believers in Christ, and hence the hostility between Jewish and Gentile Christians has been destroyed. Since the whole Mosaic law has been rendered inoperative for Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, it is a false dichotomy to distinguish between the moral and ceremonial laws. We're not just saying just the ceremonial laws, circumcision, feast, and those things have passed away. No, we're saying the whole of the Mosaic law. Christ is the end of the whole law for believers. Romans 10.4, we read that. And we as believers are no longer under the pedagogi, or the, the guardian, Galatians 3.25. In fact, we have died to the law, Romans 7, 1 through 6. Does this mean that there are no laws in the Mosaic law that the believer of today is obligated to obey? Only those that have been reiterated in the New Testament. We are under the new covenant, and the old covenant has been done away with. We are under the new covenant it is no longer our modus operandi. Christ has fulfilled it, and it is no longer operative. And this applies to both Gentile and Jewish believers who are in Christ. To be sure, Paul was opposed to antinomianism, which is being just against law, period. For he states that he was under the law of Christ, 1 Corinthians 9.21, and he was to fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. And the law of Christ is expressed best how is expressed in the new covenant that is in the new testament so we are no longer under the law of moses we live with the law of christ we live in the new covenant therefore paul's progression in the argument is that christ has destroyed the symptom that is the enmity or the the hostility between jews and gentiles by making inoperative the root or cause of that hostility, namely the law of commandments and decrees. Hence, the nullification of the Mosaic law has great significance for Jews and Gentiles in Christ. So we are now brought together, these two great people groups, Gentiles and Jews, together by Christ as he has abolished the law through his flesh. And where did he do that? He did that on the cross. So why was the law abolished? 
The purpose was peace. That's point two, the purpose of peace. To create one new person. Verse 15, back to our Ephesians passage. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's creating in himself one new man in place of the two. And by doing that, he makes peace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? New creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, a new creation in Christ. Galatians 6.15, where Paul deals with the Galatian heresy of the, the Judaizers coming down and trying to force circumcision upon the Gentiles, trying to get Gentiles to become Jews so they can be saved. And we've said in our community group, this is what? Jesus plus. Jesus plus. And we say anything that tries to add to the gospel is, is actually subtraction. I guess they would call that new math in California. Paul says this then, as he wraps up that in Galatians 6.15, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. All that counts is what? A new creation. That's what counts, being a new creation in Christ. He does this to reconcile both to God. Verse 16, so reconciling these two together, Jews and Gentiles now reconciled and now reconciling them both to God. Verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The idea here, I wish I had a, a whiteboard like I do at my school, I could draw for you. The idea here is that there is, we see a barrier, a barrier between Jew and Gentile, right? So a wall between the Jew and the Gentile. But there's also a barrier between the Jews and God. And there's also a barrier between the Gentiles and God. So the barrier between Jew and Gentile, a barrier between the, the Jews and God, a barrier between the Gentiles and God. This is all one barrier that comes down. How? All the barriers, all the hostility come down where? At the cross of Christ, as Christ fulfilled the law. How did Christ fulfill the law? How did Christ fulfill the law? Well, first... He fulfilled it by keeping it. He first fulfilled the law by keeping it. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We say this often here. Everywhere that I failed, he didn't. Everything I should have said, he said. Everything that I shouldn't have said, he didn't say. Everything that I do in thought, word, and deed, where I fail uh, our Lord, He never failed. He was without sin. He fulfilled the law by keeping the law perfectly. There's a second way that He fulfilled the law, and that was by dying for it. That was by dying for it. He met the penalty of the law for us who did fail. 
Galatians 3, 10 through 13 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Then Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by being a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law by living it perfectly and then taking our sin upon himself, taking our curse upon himself, and was hung upon a tree for us, bearing the penalty of your sin, bearing the penalty of my sin, bearing the penalty of my evil thoughts, bearing the penalty of your evil deeds, of my evil deeds. He became a curse for us and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. So that what? So that we could be reconciled, reconciled, reconciled. In Martin Lloyd's discussion of this passage, he talks about the word reconciliation, and he says that it has five parts. First, it means a change from hostile to a friendly relationship. A hostile, from a hostile to a friendly relationship. And that's the, that's the basic, most simple meaning of reconciliation. In the second place, it does not merely mean a friendship after an estrangement or a mere doing away from the estrangement. It's not that merely that people uh, are in speaking terms again who used to just walk past each other. It means more. It really means bringing together again, a reuniting, a reconnecting. Third, it, it's a word that also emphasizes the completeness of the action. It means that the enmity or the hatred or the hostility is so completely laid aside that complete amity follows. Uh, love or fellowship. It's not a compromise. The kind of thing that happens so often when a conference is going on for days. We're trying to figure out some, some, uh, some, some union negotiations. Some, some meeting is happening at your business and you're trying to work things out. It's going on for days and it's been deadlocked and suddenly someone gets a bright idea and suggests introducing a particular, a particular word or formula which just patches up the problem for the moment. It is not that. It's a complete action. It produces complete amity and concord when there was formerly hostility. It's not this. It's, it's not reconcile. It's not ceasefire. Okay, it's not just a ceasefire. Sometimes in families we... We see that, right? We're divided. We're hostile. We're angry. And someone kind of calls for a truce. That's not a, a ceasefire. It's not the same thing as reconciliation. Where you come together and say, oh my goodness, please forgive me. I love you, right? Let's be reconciled to one another. Let's, let's, let's come together again. Fourth, it, it's not merely that two partners in the trouble or the dispute just decide to come together. The word the apostle used implies that it is one of the parties that takes the action and it's the upper one that does it. The higher one, the one in authority, does the moving, 
does the action to reconcile. Finally, the word carries the meaning that it's a restoration of something that was before. Now, our word reconcile, which is really a transli transliteration of the Latin word, in and of itself means reconcile, that they would be consiled before they were consoled or consoled, they, and, and now they are reconciled together. This is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. First and foremost, he has reconciled us to himself through the cross, and because of that hostility that's now ceased between man and God, between Jews and Gentiles, now he can reconcile the two great people groups together in Christ. And so then we have the next section here, what is that? Point three. This sermon of peace that is preached. Look at verse 17. For he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So first we hear the message of the sermon verse 17. What's the message of the sermon? The message is peace. He came. Christ came and he preached. Jesus is a preacher. And his sermon here that he preached to you who were far off and you who were near, he preached this sermon. The sermon was peace to those who were far off. Who was that? The Gentiles. He preached peace to the Gentiles who were far off and he preached peace to those who were near to the Jews. The sermon was simply a sermon of one message, peace, peace, my peace I give to you. What was the result of that message? What was the result of that sermon? The result was access. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We didn't have access before. The Jews didn't have access. The Gentiles didn't have access. The access only comes ultimately and finally through Jesus Christ who gives us that perfect, beautiful access. I can remember one time in Australia, I was with a, a young man there. We were on a, a mission trip, spending the summer there in Sydney. And there was a, a huge building there called... Um, Oh my goodness, now that I'm going to tell the story, I won't remember the name of it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was a round building uh, or a square. You know, tell me, what was it? <laughs> so anyway, I was there. It was very, very, very tall. And everyone said, the, ba the best view of Sydney is to go to Sydney whatever. Sydney Tower, the tower there. Anyway, I'm sorry. So I'm sorry. It's going to fall apart. So my friend and I went there. We were at that time about 15 and 16 years old. We go, we, and we're like, let's, let's go up to the top of the tower, and we're going to go out and look. And so we go up to the very top, and there was no, like, observation deck anywhere. There was just, so we went up to this, and we looked, and we saw, oh, my goodness, look at this big panoramic view that was in these windows. But it was, to get to where the windows were, was a very, very posh, beautiful restaurant, right? White linen, very nice people dressed up, all, you know, tinkling glasses, you know, and all this stuff, you know. Waiters wearing tuxedos, all that business, and we can see there's the view. It's over there. Here we are in our Converse tennis shoes and worn jeans, right? And we, we walk right in, start walking over. 
we get almost to the glass and someone's like, excuse me, <laughs> mate. <laughs> like, what are you guys doing? I said, we're going we're gonna to look at the view. And the guy says, no. We said, what? <laughs> we're going to look at the view. No, you can't look. You can't look. You don't belong here. Get out, basically. Get out. You're out. And he, esca- he literally, we, we didn't even get to look out the window to see the beautiful view because this guy escorted us out of there. Because why? You don't have access. <laughs> you don't get to come in here. You don't have the authority. You don't have the means. You don't have the ability to come in here to see this incredible, beautiful view. That's who we all were before Christ. Before Christ, could we get in there? Could we get to God? I just want to get in and talk to him. No, <laughs> you can't get in here. You can't get in here because you don't have access. But now we have access. How? Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, because both Jew and Gentile have been reunited, have been reconciled to each other. We've been reconciled to God. No more hostility between us and God. No more hostility between the two great people groups. And next week, we will find out this next amazing passage. This starts with verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us that we who were far off, those of us who were Gentiles or who are Gentiles, uh, were separated from the household of God. But now we are part of that household. Lord, and you did this. You've united both Jew and Gentile in Christ, creating one new man by abolishing the written code, by abolishing the old covenant, the law of Moses, and giving us a new covenant in Christ Jesus, a covenant of grace and a covenant of peace, which is what we sang about even before this sermon. Father, we're so thankful that we don't have to somehow earn our way to you by keeping laws, but instead we trust in you, Jesus Christ, who kept the law for us. And now because you have put that law upon our hearts, we love you, and our desire is not because of the law pressing upon us, but instead it is a law, it is, it is, it is love that comes out of our, our hearts that, 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 that makes us, that, that creates in us a desire to delight in you and to delight in who you are and to serve you because, I, because we love you so much and you've loved us so much. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to understand this and help us to obey it. Help us to live it. Help us to love you as we ought. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you have any concerns, uh, the elders will be coming forward. You may come and pray with them. Let's stand and sing.